This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. I want to welcome you if you're a guest, you're new around here especially, I want to say thanks to you for being here today. My name is Craig and I'm one of the pastors here and uh, you've come in at a sort of interesting Sunday. If it's your first, we're wrapping up an entire book. So this is kind of like walking in uh, to a movie and the credits are rolling. But uh, the difference would be that I'm going to give you a review of the whole book. So basically what I'm going to do is what would normally be done at the beginning of a series. I'm going to give an overview of the entire book and uh, what I think we can take take away from it. So uh, this won't be longer than normal, but we are going to cover Nehemiah 1 through 13, God and the book of Nehemiah. So if you uh, have a Bible, you could turn to Nehemiah 1. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there's one uh, under the seat in front of you. You can take that out and turn to page 226. We'll be looking at a couple places in the book today, and, uh, and we'll just walk through this uh, together, and hopefully it will uh, be encouraging and helpful. And I have considered, what if people came the last two weeks or the last week or haven't been here at all? So I'm, I'm going to do my best to uh, tell the story and, uh, uh, with you together. So let's pray, and then we'll jump in. God, we thank you uh, for your goodness to us. Lord, thanks for the journey we've been on as a church, as we've learned from this book from your, your book from the scripture. And uh, we thank you for it. And we pray today that you would speak to us as we just kind of consider an overview of the book. And uh, we pray that you would um, help us to, to have some really uh, life-changing takeaways that Lord, as we leave this book, we pray that some of the things we've learned about you would stick with us uh, for application and uh, that we wouldn't just go through a study and leave it behind, Lord. We treasure your word, we listen to your word, and we pray today that you would speak to us from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, You know that experience when there's a picture that's posted on social media, maybe you're tagged in the picture, you're in the picture, and but it's on someone else's, it's coming from someone else's uh, social media uh, they, they post it and then there's a group, maybe four of you, maybe six of you, maybe 10 or 12 of you. And you're at some event or a party or a get together or just a whatever. And you're in this picture with folks. And all of a sudden you see, here's the picture. What's the first thing you do? That's thank you. That, that I appreciate that's the right answer. You find yourself. It's the first thing we all do. If you see a picture and there's a number of people in it, the first thing you do is you identify. You don't look at everyone else and, oh, look at that. Oh, well, amazing. I'm in here too. You know, just old me, silly me, thinking of me last all the time. No, you look first at yourself. And uh, that's human nature. How did I look? And why did they post that one? I look better in another one, you know? Uh, And we just are very much a self-focus. We look for ourselves, typically, we look for ourselves first in the picture. The problem is we can read the Bible in the same way. We come to a text and we look for how does this, in the first place, how does this affect me? What does this say to improve my life? What does this say uh, that gives me some kind of, you know, experience or knowledge or something like that? Now, obviously, application from the Bible is vital, but we can read it as if it's about us. And the Bible's not about you. The Bible is about God. That may be news for some of us, but the whole book is about God. And so today I want to talk about God and the book of Nehemiah. Now, hopefully I've done this every week. If, If today you go, wow, I never thought about any of that, then the study was kind of a fail because I meant to be doing this throughout. But the reality is that the book of Nehemiah and every book is ultimately about God. And once we see and know God, that has tremendous relevance for us. So the Bible has relevance. It's practical. It's applicable. But we don't start with what does this mean for me? We start with who is God? And when we think about the book of Nehemiah, I'm going to talk, kind of give five takeaways today about it. And the first one is this, that God has a plan. God has a plan plan. 
Uh, or we could say God has a purpose. Or we could say this is more common in about the last decade. This kind of language has really emerged in the church. God has a story. You know, the Bible is the story of God is somehow how, how it's talked about. Or more in more theological terms, the Bible has a redemptive history, we could say. That'd be a way to say it. So God has a plan. He has a purpose. He has a story. And Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah fits in that. Um, it's not just some random kind of life lessons about leadership. Uh, it rather fits into a bigger story. And this is a huge takeaway that I'm going to talk about in a minute. And then I'll show you how it fits into the story. And then we'll talk about how your story connects with the overall purpose or story of God. So the book of Nehemiah, God doesn't introduce himself and say, verse one, this story is about God. Meet me. I'm the main player in the story and meet my servant, Nehemiah. Now I'm going to let him take it away. Nehemiah, it's, it doesn't, God doesn't show up like that in the story. Um, but it is true that the story of Nehemiah is the story of the renewal of God's people around Jerusalem, the people of Jerusalem, and how it's connected to the larger story of the Bible. So the larger story of the Bible starts not in Nehemiah, but in Genesis. And it starts with God creating a perfect world uh, and creating a man and a woman and placing them in a garden to uh, co-labor, to work together, to rule over his creation. And uh, so it's a perfect environment. There's no sin. There's no death. There's no conflict. Uh, they have perfect relationship with God. They have perfect relationship with one another, they have perfect relationship with their environment. And uh, so they are to work and to cultivate and to serve God by, uh, you know, stewarding all that he has provided for them to enjoy and to uh, serve and to work. And what happens is something tragic occurs in that uh, Adam and Eve choose to defy God and choose to say, well, this is not really about you and your purpose. We would rather uh, sort of make ourselves like God. We would rather be the captains of our own fate. We'd rather drive our lives ourselves. So we're going to take this and say, really, it's not your story. God told them they could you know, have access to anything in the garden but one tree. Uh, and so that was the story he was writing. But they said, you know what? Interruption. We're going to kind of write our own story. And here's the story. We do what we want. So you say that you're good. You've created, but we're going to do what we want. And when they did that, everything changed and all of creation is cursed. Um, this is called the fall. And so they sin and death comes so that everyone born after them is born a sinner and ultimately dies. Selfishness, all kinds of destruction uh, to the environment and to humanity comes because of this. And most importantly of all, their relationship with God is broken. Now, when they sin, the amazing thing is right after they sin, God makes this promise. And his promise is that he is going to reverse all the effects. What they undid, he's going to put back together. He's going to reverse the effects of their sin and death, and he is going to make all things new. So he gives this promise. So at the beginning, there is creation, and then there is this sin, which is uh, called the fall. They fall. And then at the fall, there is this promise that God's going to make all things new. And much of the rest of the Bible including the book of Nehemiah, is about that. It's about God's plan, his, pr the progress in the plot of the story to make all things new. So he begins that by making a promise to a guy named Abraham. So he selects a guy named Abraham. This is years, years, years after Adam and Eve. And he says, you know what? I'm going to make a people out of you. So you're going to have defend, uh, descendants and you're going to have a land and I'm going to be in relationship with you. And that people are called Israel. So the people of Israel come out of, um, uh, they come out of uh, uh, Abraham and his descendants and God commits himself to them. He gives them a law to follow. And when they break that law, he gives them a system of sacrifices that they can enact to be forgiven for their sins. And all of this is going on. He's preparing the way for the one who will reverse the curse, who will turn back what Adam and Eve lost, who will win back, who will redeem people. They all are waiting for this. So this is happening throughout the story. And the one who comes that changes everything is Jesus. And we celebrate him, the God man and what he does next weekend, his work on the cross. We have good Friday service here, six o'clock. Uh, so the good Friday service, we celebrate his death 
remember that in both a somber and celebratory gathering at once, the two together. And then next Sunday morning is Easter where we celebrate Jesus' rising from the dead to defeat death and sin. So the book of Nehemiah comes before Jesus comes. So this is in the story where God is preparing for the Messiah to come and rescue. And in the meantime, he's committed to his people. He's seeking to build a people that look like him and reflect him to the world. And uh, what happens at the book of Nehemiah is 150 years before Nehemiah's book, this story rather, uh, God's people had turned away from him and had again done their own story. We're going to worship whatever gods we want to worship. And ultimately he carries them off into exile and um, their city is destroyed, Jerusalem, their temple is destroyed. Uh, And in the book of Nehemiah, what God does is he empowers the people to rebuild what has been lost in uh, when the temple was destroyed and the city was destroyed. So the book of the, uh, what we call the Old Testament, the story of God bringing about redemption is really an up and down story. I mean, it is, it is an adventure. There, there's, you, by the time you get to the end of it, you're like, man, I wouldn't be surprised by anything. There is people doing all kinds of grievous stuff. And you kind of, man, like nothing would surprise me uh, after reading that and all that happened. So he brings Nehemiah back to rebuild the city. But what we find out in that story is that God is not just rebuilding the city, but he's rebuilding people. He's rebuilding his people by his word to enjoy his goodness, to live for his purposes so that Jerusalem, where his people live, could be a light to the world as they ready themselves for the coming Messiah. So the book of Nehemiah is just one chapter in an overall story of redemption that starts with creation, then Adam and Eve's fall, which affected all of us, and we ratify their fall on a daily basis. And then God building a people for himself that one day will receive a Messiah who will turn everything around. The point is this, that God has a plan. The story of Nehemiah is not a morality tale. It's not an Aesop's fable where, okay, what can we learn of just good principles? It's connected. It's a chapter. It's a chapter in a book which tells a story of God renewing all things. And it's helpful for us to remember that because it means that in the book of Nehemiah, what happens is not random. It's not meaningless. Even the trials they experience aren't just some kind of uh, you know, surprising thing that happens. And that's true for you and me. Our lives are not random. They are not meaningless. There, there is mystery. We don't know why certain things happen. Uh, we don't know why uh, certain things don't happen. But for the person who knows Jesus Christ, or in Nehemiah's case, for the person who anticipated his coming, for that person, your individual life has meaning because it connects to what God is doing. It connects to what God is doing on the planet to build a people for his glory, to extend mercy to people, to extend grace to people, to show his love to people that are blinded and don't know him. So our individual stories, just like the people in Nehemiah, connects as Christians, connects to this greater uh, narrative, this greater purpose of God. So just as Nehemiah and the people are in his plot, so are we. He's revealing himself to build a people, not to just give us private religious experiences, but to reconcile us to him, reconcile us to his people so that we together live for his name and his fame in the world. And so just as Nehemiah's story uh, fits with that, so desires. Nehemiah's story ends with the uh, rebuilding of Jerusalem. And our story ultimately will end uh, with the new Jerusalem. So will theirs. But the new Jerusalem, the, the new heavens and the new earth that God will bring that we read about in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. So we will ultimately live with God eternally. And that is how sort of the story ends. So if the, if the idea is that the book of Nehemiah fits in a greater story, and so does ours, then the second point I think we take from the book is that God... God calls his people to participate in his plan. He calls his people to participate in this plot. 
in this storyline. He calls us to that. That's what Nehemiah 1 is about. The book begins with Nehemiah being drawn in to become a servant of God's plan. We read in the first chapter that he hears that the people of God's city, so he's living in a, in a foreign city under a foreign king, but he hears that God's city in Jerusalem, which was to be a light to the world, he hears in chapter one that the city is in great ruins. It remains in ruins since the exile. So verse three of chapter one, he says, the remnant is there in the province who had survived the exile. They're in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So the city of God, which was to be the place where God was going to reveal himself to the world through his people, it's, it's broken down. It's in shambles. It's rubble. And so the book opens kind of with this question, uh, is God's plan of redemption, is it stalled or is it over? I mean, did we miss, did we misunderstand? Has God changed his mind? It's been 150 years. So is, is the city sort of doomed? Is his plan of redemption just stalled out? I mean, you can, you can think that in your own life. Where is God right now? I mean, I became a Christian and now I know Christ and I've got, I've got some sense of an idea of purpose in my life, but where's God now and what's happening? And it's not working out like I thought. And there's problems and challenges and I'm confused and God seems distant. And the question can be, has God's plan for me stalled or has God sort of, is the plan over? And this story tells us, no, that's not the case. God's plan is never over. And actually his plan never stalls. It may from our vantage point appear like nothing's happening, but God is always at work in a million ways that we don't see and know. And sometimes can only see in hindsight. Sometimes only see in hindsight. The problem, the burden you walked in here with today, you may not get it. What it means for another year, 10 years, see what God did. You may not know until eternity what God did through that. So that's helpful. I mean, he hears the city's broken down. Oh man, it's been a long time. Where is God? So this is sad news to him. And this is where his story, the, the personal story of Nehemiah interacts with God's bigger story right in this chapter. Because what happens is it says, verse four, that he wept and he mourned for days. And he calls out, verse five, to the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. He calls God, God, you are faithful. Fulfill your purposes. We know you're moving this somewhere. We know there's a plot, but it appears like you have abandoned us. And so God, we're calling on you to do something. And his, his heart is affected by this. This is really important to get that Nehemiah's heart is affected by the things that affect God's heart. So he's saying, hey, this isn't about me. This is about the fame of God. The people of God are in, in they're like um, in tatters. People of God are threadbare. The people of God look just like those city walls, torn apart in rubble and burned out gates. And so it affects his heart. And one thing we know from Nehemiah's story and from all the stories of the Bible is that God will always use people whose heart resonates with his. The person whose heart connects to what matters to God, that person will have the most meaning, the most purpose, and will make the greatest difference in their lives. The person who says, I'm not living for my agenda. What's on God's heart? I want that on my heart and I want to live accordingly. That's what Nehemiah does. That's his heart. God's compassionate to the suffering. God's compassionate to the vulnerable and his people certainly were. They had no protection. Their walls were torn down. God is compassionate to the weak and to the broken and to the struggling. That's Israel at this point. And that's affecting Nehemiah. He longs to see God's people the way they're supposed to be. So in chapter 2, after Nehemiah identifies, uh, and I won't spend this much time on every chapter, but just as Nehemiah identifies with God's heart here, then God starts moving mightily. We learn in chapter two, this is what we learn about God. Takeaway point. What do we learn about God? He calls us to participate in his story and he is sovereign over the story. God rules. What we learn in chapter two is is that he moves mightily, that he is in control. He uses a foreign king, a foreign unbelieving king. And this king provides the way for Nehemiah to go back and rebuild the city, the city walls, and to see the city repopulated. And this king 
who does that at risk to himself. Like if you're a king and you have all kinds of people, peoples under you, it's not in your best interest to have them fortify their city with walls to protect themselves. That's not really in your best interest politically, but he does that. Not only that, he pays for it. And not only that, but he sends people to guard Nehemiah to see that it happens. And that's why in chapter 2, verse 2, Nehemiah says, uh, The king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. See, at these points we get a hint. Who's really the hero of this story? Who's the main mover of this story? Well, it's God. The good hand of God is with me, helping me along. We get little hints like that. Like turning a pagan king's heart to rebuild God's city. Okay, that's a hint that God's doing something. Or the good hand of God is with me. God's fulfilling his purposes. He's causing pagan kings to do his will. And he's using an available man who cares about God's purposes. Who is praying, fasting, weeping for the people of God, and volunteering. That's people, that's who God uses in his story. So he, he calls us in the same way to participate. He calls us to, to trust him. You're in control, God. He calls us to, he calls us to uh, look to his, what is on his heart. He calls us to, to see what his plan is as best we can to understand the kind of God he is and then to link ourselves to him and follow him. How does God want to use you? He uses Nehemiah. How does God want to use you in his story? I think the opening couple of chapters of Nehemiah is a great sort of model to show us what God does and how he wants to use us in his plot, in his plan. Here's a place I think we start. I think we start right where Nehemiah does. Where's their brokenness around you? Nehemiah is affected by a broken down city and a broken down people. So we need to ask, hey, God, where is their brokenness around me? I may feel like I'm wiped out, but I believe you want to use me to help someone else. He starts with the people of God. Lord, your people are in rubble. So where is their hurting, suffering, weak people around you. Start with the church. This is the story is about the people of God. So we don't end that's not everything, but I'd start there. Who around you in your church, if this is your church, then who in Grace Church, but if this is not your church, then wherever your church is, who, who around you is hurting today? God is going to be with the person who moves towards the weak because that's God's heart. That's how God acts in this account and in throughout the Bible. Who is it that needs help? Who is it that needs encouragement? Who in your small group? Who can you bear the burdens of? Because that's what God is about. He's about restoring people. He's about uh, renewing people. He's about sustaining people through his people. That's what happens here. He takes this person, Nehemiah. We're going to build my people through my people. So who is it in your life? Somebody's like, well, I just don't know what to do. I don't know what God wants me to do. Who's in your life that's hurting? I'd start there. Say, God, can you help me somehow communicate your love, your support, your help to that, to that person? Um, break my heart for what breaks your heart. Stir me for your purposes. And then who outside, who outside of your church, who in your world has he placed you with um, that you can reach and share the love of God to? Who could you bring next weekend to hear the good news that Christ is alive and everything he's changing. He's changing and he's restoring people's lives. When that happens, this is where I found in my life, when I am, when, when I'm drawn and seeking to help someone who needs God in their life, that, and, and, and I feel like God's helping me in that, get my eyes off myself and get them. And that's when I honestly feel most alive. That's so why I feel like this is what I'm on the planet for, not as a pastor, as a human and as a Christian. That, that's when I'm living engulfed for me, man, I'm just always grasping. I got to have something else. I need more. I need more. This is empty. You think you get sick of me? I get sick of me too. You know, <laughs> there's just, uh, I, I need more. But when I'm saying, Lord, what's on your heart and I'm praying and I'm calling out to God and I'm ri- taking a step, even a step of risk as he does here. That's when I feel like the Lord. Yeah, this is why, this is why I'm on planet earth breathing air. 
That's where my story connects to his story. If you want to know what, how can I be meaningfully fulfilled, then I would ask you, then how is your story intersecting the purpose of God on planet earth? Because where that intersection is happening, that's where you're most alive. That's where you're most fulfilling what God's called you to fulfill. So Nehemiah does this. He goes chapter three. He tells the people, hey, look what God's doing. He's going to rebuild the city. And it's amazing. They all say, yes, we're in. The people rally. They build. Everybody's on the wall. It's glory. One of the best chapters. It's like it's Acts two of the New Testament. It's one of the best chapters where everybody's on the wall. They're all building. They're together. The young and the old. It's a construction project, and in those days, women wouldn't typically have participated in construction projects, but it even tells us there's women on the wall, too, working as well, which is great. The Lord gives us that detail that, hey, this is is not just how the society does it. God is doing something unique and powerful, and it includes all people who, who believe in him. So they are working together. And it's like, man, what can't we do? God is restoring us and they feel alive. We are in the midst of what God is doing. He's rebuilding the wall and it happens fast. I forget. We, we said this, I should know this, but it's like 50 days or something. I forget, but it's a quick project. And man, they, they just get it knocked out and they are working. But, but then chapter four, we learn something else is that we learn, first of all, God has a plan. It's a big plan. This fits in it. Number two, God calls us, the, his people, to participate in his plan. And that's your sweet spot is when you're connected to what God has for you in your life, using your gifts, fulfilling all your various callings for him. And thirdly, God always allows resistance to his plan. <laughs> he always allows resistance to his plan. That's why this book is so real. Because what happens when they get started in chapter four, there is external resistance The people around don't like this. And so they're mocking them. And when mocking them doesn't work, they threaten them. And actually, they have to do the work in chapter 4, having some of the people guard them. Other people are like working with spear. They have people with spears guarding them. Other people are working with swords and, you know, hammer in one hand. I don't know if they're using a hammer, whatever. They're just using a... a, a, um, a hand tool, whatever they're doing uh, to build the wall. uh, And then they got a weapon in the other hand. They got to protect themselves. So it's like, God, if you're moving kings, if you can move a king and provide the project and pull us all together, that's miraculous. Why in the world would God let these people threaten them? And and why would he do that? God's purpose for your life will include resistance. When you connect with his purpose, there will be great joy and there will be resistance. It's exactly what happens here. They're, they're, they're in rubble. And so in verse 10 of chapter four, they're ready to give up. They say this in chapter 10, it's gone well in chapter three. They haven't finished, but in chapter four, verse 10, they say this, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble by ourselves. We will not be able to rebuild the wall. There's, There's too much rubble. This is too much work. They're opposing us. They're threatening us. You ever feel like that? Man, I'm trying to serve the Lord. I'm just trying to love my spouse. I'm trying to love my kid. I'm trying to do a good job at work. I just tried to start serving at church. And all of a sudden, all of it, there's too much rubble. There's too much rubble. It feels overwhelming. And then there's, there's voices of critics who don't get, why are you trying to rebuild anyway? Why are you trying to, why are you investing your time serving others? There seems to be so little progress. People are apathetic. They're judgmental. They're inconsistent. How about this one? Everyone down there's a hypocrite. Why are you just giving your life to Jesus and church? And it's just a bunch of hypocrites, a bunch of hypocrites who are on the wrong side of history, who are out of date with what's going on. Why are you wasting your time with Jesus and the church? So you're trying to serve the Lord, and then there's somebody barking in your ear. It's a waste of time. Don't do that. God allows resistance. 
Resistance checks our motives because in verse 14 of that same chapter, Nehemiah then tells the people, do not be afraid. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. If things are always going well, you will not remember the Lord who is great and awesome. I don't. When things are going well, I've got it. I'm not praying as desperately. I'm not crying out. I've got it in those days when things are going really, really well. I believe that one reason God allows resistance to his people from the out, this is resistance from the outside, resistance from the outside, which Jesus said they will, ha- will happen. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you if you're standing for me. But the reason he does that is because it just causes us to come back in desperation. Who's great and awesome? Israel? Nehemiah? No. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And you start, you got to remember him when life is not going the way you want it to go. When you started off on God's mission and now it's really, really rough. Chapter six, the opposition comes again from the outside. This time it's an open letter and it's rumors that, that Nehemiah says, all these people are trying to make us afraid. They're saying, hey, all of this, this is what everybody's saying, Nehemiah, about this construction project you've got going. And so he says, I'm not, gonna be, I'm not coming down off the wall. I'm doing what God called me to do. You're not going to lead me to fear. But there's another kind. So now it's not we're going to hurt you physically. Now it's we're going to lie about you and make accusations so you will stop doing what you're doing. But they resisted and they continue. In the middle of chapter 4 and 6 with the external resistance, there's an internal problem. So not only is there external pressure when we attach our lives and our church and our purposes and our community with the greater purposes of God in history, there's not only outside resistance, there are inside problems as well. And in our culture, so chapter four and chapter six are outside resistance. I think in our culture, we're more affected by chapter five. That's four and six is outside internal problems. We're usually our worst enemy. We're, we're, we're usually shooting ourselves in the foot in the church. That's what we typically do. Uh, you know, it, people from the outside are aware of us and they do resist us and they do hinder us at various points. But more often than not, at least at this point in our history, in this country, uh, there's, there's probably more problems with us. We've seen the problem and it is us. That's usually it. So what happens in chapter five? Well, we can't build the wall because we got problems in Israel. We got rich Jews taking advantage of poor Jews. That's what's happening in Israel. So we got to deal with this. We've got rich people who are holding poor people who are poor because of uh, difficulties that have come upon them. They're taking their kids as slaves to pay off debts that their parents owe. So he's like, we got to hold on. We, we're not gonna be able to build the wall when we're oppressing one another. It's like the biggest problem is not sand ballot and, uh, and threatening them and Tobiah that's either threatening them physically or threatening them uh, with uh, accusations, that, that's not the biggest problem. The biggest problem right now is that we've got people who are taking advantage of one another, oppressing one another. And so he has to work everybody together and um, work that out. And they repent. And we see that God leads his people to repent and work together. And what's so obvious here is that the story of redemption is not about walls and cities and temples. It's about people. And so he is coming, he's using the wall as just a project for everybody to work together where you go, oh, some of us can't work together because we're oppressing each other. So it, it becomes the work together becomes this opportunity for God's people to repent and come together and be changed. That's what God is about, changing a people for himself. And he will use resistance from the outside and conflict on the inside to change us to humble ourselves, to repent, and to come alongside and work with the person on the wall that we previously were separated from. God allows conflict, why? To purify his people. I'm not saying God's the author of that oppression, like he was in some sense delighting in oppression. Not at all. We have free will. We make choices. 
we're responsible for our actions uh, when it comes to something like this. So the people are responsible, but God allows that to happen to purify his people. Our resistance from the outside and our resistance from the inside is never meaningful, meaningless. Chapters four through six are not really a hindrance to the project. You could feel it. Oh, they're, they're charging us. They're, they're going to hurt us. Um, oh, we've got problems inside. You could, you could go, this is such a distraction. What a distraction from the purpose of building the wall. But no, this is all what God's about. And in my life, I don't know about you, but I feel that way sometimes. Just trying to serve the Lord. Why did this come up? I'm trying to do this. And I had, the, I had this day set apart to do this. And all of a sudden I've got unexpected car trouble. And I had to go over here. Then I had to go over here. And then I lost half my day having to deal with this thing when I really wanted to do something good over here. And I find out the whole thing is about the, the, whole, the car. The car is not a distraction. It's the whole thing God wants to get at my heart at. Because God doesn't want me to just get my thing done. God wants me to have my heart changed. And if I'm just getting my thing done the way I want it to do, I may not lean on him. But when the car interrupts all that, now I'm behind and now I got to cancel it and whatever it is, you've all got stuff like that at work, at home. We've all got that kind of stuff. You go, this is such a distraction. I'm just trying to serve God. This is serving God. Welcome to the faith. This is serving God. God will allow resistance to our plans so that we're dependent and desperate for him. But that's not all the story in Nehemiah. God renews, the, the fourth point would be, I got five, this is four. God renews his people to fulfill his plan. So God has a plan. God allows us to participate in the plan. God always allows us to be resisted in the midst of the plan. But God also renews us to fulfill his plan. If the book of Nehemiah tells us anything, it tells us this about God. God's a renewing God. God's a restoring God. God's a reviving God. If you can read the book of Nehemiah and not come away with an anticipation that let's ask God for renewal, then you've not read the book correctly. Because this book tells us that God delights to renew us. He delights to take a rubble of a people and make them a strong wall, to use the metaphor of the book. God likes to take someone in tatters and restore them to spiritual life and vitality. God loves to take people that are separated by socioeconomic divide, which causes one to take advantage of the other, which causes one to act selfishly. God loves to see those people brought back together. God loves to see his people who are hopeless. All of a sudden we're on the wall. We're building the wall. God loves to revive and to renew his people. And we see in chapter eight, this happens through the word. The renewal really comes when the people say, Ezra, who's the uh, a scribe, read us the Bible. Tell us, give us the word. They're crying out for it. And so he reads the Bible to them half a day. And after a half a day of reading the Bible, they are undone. They're, they're, they see God like they haven't before. They re realize they failed God. They, they cry and they repent. They humble themselves before God. And then they run off and have a huge party, this feast. Of, it's called the Feast of Booths. They go off and have a seven-day celebration that the scripture requires them to have. So we say, while they're renewed, they're not rubble. They're not chapter one. We met them. They're not in shame. Said they were in shame to begin. They're broken down. They're in great trouble and shame. They're not in great trouble and shame. They're full of life. They're renewed. They're revived again. It's like all those people from the outside that were persecuting, it's like they're gone. It's like all those people from the inside that were fighting together, we're in unity. We're all under the word. And we, we find out that God's word, when that encounters hungry hearts, when our lives, our story meets his through the word of God, what happens is life change, renewal, refreshing, fruit, growth, progress. And it's, it's phenomenal, man. When a whole community hungers for the word of God and says, whatever the word of God says, we will do it. And they're crying out, bring us the word. When they're not saying, hey, can we have a little bit less? It's, this is kind of, this is a little bit too much for me. They're saying, give us more. 
So when, there, it, when that is the heart of people, God does amazing things. And he turns their hearts so they start making radical commitments. They vow to obey God's word. They say, we're going to prioritize our marriages. We're going to prioritize, we're, we're going to say your time, we're going to be on your clock. So God had a Sabbath. He, every seventh day they couldn't work, but they had been trashing that for years. So uh, they say, hey, God, we're on your calendar. Your calendar is our calendar. When, you're, when you get on God's calendar and you say, when he sets aside a day for worship and rest, and you say, okay, I'll be about that, life goes a lot better than when you say, I don't really care about your calendar, God. I'll write my own story. So they say, hey, we're, we're on your calendar, God. We are doing the Sabbath. And by the way, our money is your money. He owns everything. That's the story of the Bible. God owns everything. He says, it's all mine. We need to live with that. He says, it's all mine. That's very, very helpful when you're thinking about what you own, what you believe, what you do. And so they start giving. Chapter 10, they promise we're going to give all this whole multitude of offerings. We're going to do all this to give. And then they repopulate the city. So the city walls have been built. So then they put people back in. They volunteer. Let's go live in the city. Worship the Lord together. Be a countercultural people, a people that say, man, that people, who is their God? They're amazing. Let's live together and uh, walk out our faith together. So they do that. Worship together. And then in chapter 12, there's fanfare. They dedicate the walls. There's choirs on top of the walls, walking around, singing, marching. It's like a parade. And man, chapters 8 through 12, you're going, man, chapters 8 through 12 couldn't be any different than chapter 1 because it wants to tell us, Nehemiah wants to tell us, God wants to tell us, if you want to know the story of God, it includes this, that God is a renewing and a reviving God. And where there is hunger and willingness to obey, God will change a life and he'll change a whole community. It's what we learn about God. It's, it's glorious. It's one of the favorite parts of the book. It's why people oftentimes read the book, uh, be, uh, study the book, because I want to know renewal. I want revival. After 150 years of suffering, God turns everything right side up. And now in chapter 12, it's like, this is the way it's supposed to be. You've had those moments. Wow, this is the way it's supposed to be. If we could just capture this moment, this experience, these days, if we could just capture this. Some of you, maybe you were new believers. Uh, you've been at that, that season when you're first converted and you go, oh, I, just, it'll, I want it to always be like this because God's renewed you. Or you've had a renewing experience as a Christian. You say, God, God's alive to me again. You say, I want it to always be like this. That's chapters eight through 12 because God is a renewing God. He renews his people to fulfill his plan. And so I'm, I'm assuming at this point that there is such joy. They're like, what's God gonna do next, man? We've got our whole city back. We're full of life. We're in unity. I mean, the Messiah is probably showing up any moment. How could he stay away from us? This is incredible, you know? And, uh, but the Messiah doesn't show up for another 400 years. Because even after all this great stuff in 8 through 12, we learn this lesson about God's story. It's not finished yet. God's story is not finished for the people in Jerusalem, in Nehemiah. God's story is not finished for us. His story is not finished yet. Last week we saw this, all the commitments they make in chapter 10, all the commitments they say that they will fulfill. By chapter 13, they've gone back on every one of them. It's it's really a sad chapter in some ways. Nehemiah goes back to the capital city. He leaves Jerusalem. He goes back for a number of years to the city of Susa where Artaxerxes, the king is that he serves. He goes back there. And when when he's away, everything unravels. It's, it's, the, the renewal crashes. He comes back and it is a mess of compromise. Some of the men have married foreign women and it's not that they're foreign that's a problem. It's that they serve foreign gods and now they're raising their kids in a way that the next generation, some of the kids don't, can't, can't, they've been taught the language of Ashdod, other nations. They can't even understand the Bible or all that God's done for them. They're, they're being enculturated 
uh, in a foreign belief system and, and, and don't know God. The folks have compromised on that Sabbath thing. Uh, it was your calendar that we're living under. Now we're going to go back to our calendar and they compromise on that. They totally stop giving. This is our money. Lord, the, the story of the Bible is God owns everything. My story is I own everything and I'll give God the portion I choose to give him. Uh, but, but they change that story. And because they change that story, the people that work in the temple have nothing to eat because all the people don't give. So they leave the temple. So the temple staff's gone out working the fields because the people aren't um, supporting them so that they can lead the ministry of the temple. And they let an enemy, one of their arch enemies, move in, set up an apartment, have a residence in the temple. And it's like, okay, what's the most absurd thing that could happen? That guy that, that totally, you know, challenged and threatened and wanted to abuse the people of God in like chapters two through six, let's let him live in the temple. That's a good idea. That's what happens. And you go, God, this is the end of the book. Really? We really like some of that chapter eight through 12. You preaching that stuff, you can get a whoop glory from the congregation, but you get to chapter 13 and it's like, oh my, what a downer. And you look at that, what is going on? What do we make of this? Here's what we make of it. God is not finished with his story. The story is still being written. We're not in heaven yet. It's not perfect. Things on the earth still unravel. And it ends with this longing for someone to come. There's an implicit longing. Who can come and fix this? I mean, Nehemiah is arguably one of the greatest leaders in the Bible. One of the greatest leaders in the Bible. But if Nehemiah can't make it happen, with who can? Who is the person that could come and bring permanent, lasting change? It ain't Nehemiah. But we should have known that back at the beginning because it's not Nehemiah's story. It's the story of God. So it's not finished. And the one who can bring that lasting change comes 400 years later, and his name's Jesus Christ the God man. And he comes to bring lasting change through his death and his resurrection. He comes to give us new life, to build a people who are connected to him, who are filled with his spirit, united to him, that can bring blessings to the nations, revealing who he is. We have distinct privileges that the people in Nehemiah's day did not. We have the spirit of God living in us. We are, we have a greater revelation of what God is like because he's, he's come in the flesh. So we know more than they do because we can read of Jesus and see what God is like in the flesh. Uh, we, we, uh, we, we are joined and united to Christ. So all the benefits he provides are ours. So we're in a better position than they are. We have the spirit living in us. We have the whole scripture. They did not. So we have distinct advantages and privilege. They did not have. However, however, we know compromise as well. Nobody should read chapter 13 and go, wow, those people, that's pretty sorry. After all God did for them. Why? I would never. No, we know compromise. We, we know what it's like to fear con- those on the outside who persecute us. We know what it's like to have conflict on the inside and either instigate it or run from it or have some ungodly attitude towards it. We know what it's like to be apathetic to Scripture as they were prior to chapter 8. We know what it's like to have irregular patterns of worship and irregular patterns of giving like they do in this book. We know what it's like to have marriage problems and family and children problems like they do in this book. We know what it's like to be weak before a watching world. We know what it's like to feel overwhelmed. The rubble's too great. I can't be a part of this project of redemption, God's story anymore. Yet it's still true. Even though Christ has come, the story is not finished. His plan is not finished. There was creation. There was sin and fall. There was the plan of redemption, which comes in Christ. But that plan is continuing on as he's fashioning a people of his spirit for his glory. And we are awaiting not the first coming of Christ as they were. We're awaiting the second coming when he will come and make all things new and things will be as they were supposed to be. We read a book like this and we should long for, we read chapter 13, we should look at ourselves and we should long for heaven, the return of Christ to, re, to initiate the new heavens and the new earth. That's our sustaining hope that one day God will make all things new. He will resurrect us, give us redeemed bodies, and we will be forever with his people in the new heavens and the new earth, those who have believed in Christ.
This reality is so indescribable that the Bible, the way it describes us is it tells us, well, it either uses picturesque language at the end of Revelation, or it just tells us it's going to be so great. Let me just tell you what's not, what it's not going to be like. Let me just tell you what won't be there. That's the description of the new heavens and the earth. It's so grand and so glorious that human language can't really even fully describe it. But human language at the end of Revelation says, oh, there'll be no sin. There'll be no death. There'll be no pain. There'll be no hurt. There'll be no need for reconciliation because there'll be no more um, breaking of relationships. There'll be, there'll be no uh, abuse. There'll be no divorce. There'll be no anger. There'll be no cancer. There'll be no, there'll be no infertility. There'll be no poverty. There'll be no starvation. There'll be no school shootings. There'll be no racism. All of the things that tug on us in this life and break our hearts, they'll all be gone. There'll be no children that die because no one will die. There'll be no theft. There'll be no pornography. There'll be no exploitation of anyone at all in any context. The Bible just tells us, the Bible didn't say all those categories. I added some, but it says sin. So I just kind of took some liberty there. Um, That won't be there. That day is to fuel the hope for this day to tell us God's story is moving. Your story matters as you connect to his story. God will give you resistance in the story. God will renew you in the story. And the story is not done yet. So keep your hope in front of you. Your life The the life of the world lacks a coherent plot and a coherent story and a coherent purpose. It's every man and woman for themselves to define their own reality, to define their own plan, to define their own values, to define their own course in life. And it's all futile and vain ultimately. But the story of scripture is tremendously hopeful because God is with us in it. God is always acting, even in our suffering, even chapter uh, four and six in our persecution, even chapter five in our difficulties with other believers. So our problems with unbelievers, our problems with believers, God's working through all that. Even in our weakness, we can't do this. The rubble's too great. God is working. Even when our hearts grow cold and we backslide, God is at work to bring us back to himself. So if you're a Christian, you cannot be in a situation today where God is not with you and God is not desiring to work all things for your good and his glory. That is meaning, that is purpose. That gives, that gives hope in the darkest circumstance and situation as we long for the day when all the suffering and all the pain and the death and the sin and the loss will be gone. That means whatever you are doing now for the glory of God, which is all of life, whatever you are doing now for the glory of God matters. And God is in it and God is with you. I love the illustration of the picture of when we consider our life, the plot of our life, Oftentimes, it's confusing and we don't get it. And it's like looking at the underside of a tapestry on a loom. And a tapestry on a loom on the backside just looks like a mess of thread or yarn or whatever's being used. It just looks like a mess. Things tied up, bunches of stuff here. It's like, well, I can't even see a pattern. There's no pattern to my life. There's, it seems absurd. It seems random. It seems like suffering. Why? But when the tapestry is turned over, you go, oh, that was all sewn together. And look how beautiful it is. So here's the picture. Here's the story of God. We see the underside of the tapestry, but there's coming a day when he returns and we see him face to face and the tapestry turns over and we see the conclusion of the story in all of its glory. And, and we will say in that moment, it was all worth it to serve Christ. It was all worth it because look is what he has done. Today, we live in the gap between promise and reality, but the reality is coming. And it's coming sooner than any of us know. And it's more glorious than we can imagine. And so what you do in living for the glory of God and the good of others, loving them, it all matters. And God is with you in it, even when it looks like a tangled mess. He is sewing a tapestry that is beautiful and glorious as he sews us together. I think those are the God takeaways from a big picture from the book of Nehemiah. God has a purpose. We can be a part of that purpose. 
There's resistance when we're a part of that purpose, but God renews us in the midst of that purpose, and the story is not over. The purpose is not totally fulfilled yet. That day is coming. May our story intersect his story. May our church story intersect what God is doing in Frisco and surrounding communities in these days for his glory. And may we have great hope and confidence in him. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.